How good was that? I'm very grateful to have the worship we do. We have some very gifted people in our church that come and lead. Matt, leading the worship, it's amazing. If uh, you don't know, I've been to other churches where it has not felt that way, a sense of the Spirit and God moving. So thank you all that put into that, man. And those in the booth, they, there's a whole lot of back work done that you will never realize that uh, just a whole lot of work to make this all look good. I do very little, actually. I just come and read a book, and you guys act like I do something good. So... We're going to continue on. If you have your Bibles, it'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I hope you're not getting bored with it. I initially planned on Ecclesiastes being, uh, we're going to go through like six weeks. Uh, we, we actually should be in chapter 6 right now, but every time I start unpacking, it spreads out more and more and more. So the moment one of you falls asleep on me, that's how I know that my time has come to switch subjects or switch topics or whatever. Um, so that's like a joke a kid once said. A pastor went and talked to a kid and said, you know why people are so quiet during church? And the kid said, well, you should know you're the one that put them to sleep. So, um, all right, thank you. You did a great crowd today. Um, good to have you guys at home. I know you guys online are laughing a lot more than they are in here. Uh, so with your Bibles open, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I'm going to open with this question. What is the greatest accomplishment you've ever accomplished, and who helped you do it? Can you think about that? Take a second, talk to people next to you. What's the greatest accomplishment you can think of in my life I've ever accomplished uh, and then how, who helped you accomplish it? Some of you might be just getting the kids here uh, with their hair brushed. That was an accomplishment, and I don't know what it is. So take a second, talk with people next to you. I don't know what your answer is. Hopefully you accomplished something. I, I don't know if that you did or, or didn't. Um, um, my, my greatest accomplishment recently was learning how to brush my daughter's hair. Uh, I, I didn't know how to do that. Um, and, and my wife taught me. She was the one that helped me that you start at the bottom of their hair and work up. I always start at the bottom top, and I couldn't figure out why they were screaming while I was trying to brush these knots out of their hair to the point that I gave Hallie dreadlocks at one point because I t tied it so tight in her hair and stuff. So, you know, that's a great accomplishment for me. My, my daughter, Addie, comes. She's like, Daddy, why don't you know how to, why don't you know how to do ponytails? And I'm like... Are you kidding me? Like, I've got, that's, this is a new thing for me in my life. Uh, I don't know what yours is, uh, but it ties into this question that I want to ask today is this, is why, why can't I do it myself? Isn't that just a mantra we have sometimes? Like, I'll, I'll just do it myself. If you know people that are headstrong like that, and they're just like, you know what? I don't need anybody's help. I'm going to do it myself. I'm like that. If you want to give me grief, give me a hard time, like, back off. I'll do it myself. I don't need your help. And I'll go and stubbornly, even though I know I can't do it, I'm going to go and prove a point and go that anyway. Anyway, I think there's something American about that, isn't there? I could be wrong. I don't know. Uh, the American dream, as someone once coined the phrase, this idea that you can go and be whatever you want to be if you just put forth hard work. And, and a lot of the idea is about everyone has an equal opportunity, but more so it's this idea that if you try hard enough, if you work hard enough, you, you can accomplish anything you want in, in the United States of America. If you want to go own your own business, hey, you put forth the effort, you can do it. It's this mindset of becoming a self-made person. You can accomplish anything you want to accomplish if you just get after it. 
The problem I have with that thing, and not trying to be unpatriotic, please don't walk away and say, you know, Eric hates America or whatever like that. The problem with becoming a self-made person is it teaches this idea that dependency on others is weakness, but, but being independent is strength. And the reality is when we look at Scripture, it's just not biblical. And the even more problem with this is in the pursuit of self, we often forget the need for others. We forget how valuable other people in our life are. I'll be honest, when I really try to think of my greatest accomplishments, I think of several things I've done. I, I sometimes struggle to think of who helped me become what I am today or along the way, who really paved that way, because we want to think about ourselves too often. And the reality is that's just not the way it is. I think of someone uh, in the church that I talked to recently. We went out to lunch, and uh, we're talking about missions and stuff. And he said over and over, and just kind of grinning me, he said, listen, at the end of it, people matter. I said, yeah, okay, cool. And we kind of tried carrying on. He said, no, 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 no. I think he missed what saying. He said, people matter. And the more he said that, the more we talked, the more we began to process, realize, you know, there is truth in that. People do matter. And they do play an integral part. But I take it even a step farther. Not just do people matter, but, but relationships matter. And the truth you're going to see in Solomon's text today, the big idea I want to hopefully unpack for you is, is relationships ultimately make life better. And isn't that a hard topic right now? Right now we're in a culture where we're being divided and we're being so much, where, you know, I, I'm just going to stay at home and do my own. I don't need these people. Even our church, I mean, we have so many people gone and missing, and, and some attitude is like, well, they can just stay at home. Or I don't really care. I mean, I'll just do my own thing. Me and my family keep chugging along, and yet it, it's just not biblical. And it's not good. And I want you to look at what Solomon has to say as he talks about a better way of life. As a matter of fact, in chapter 4 all the way through 5, and we'll look again next week, he kind of keeps coming to this idea of like, this is how you're used to doing it, but, but a better way is, is this. And so let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4 through 16. And I'm going to warn you, it's going to sound like rambling. It really will, but I promise you it ties together. He says, I saw all the labor and all the skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. This, too, is futile, or as uh, we remember, hevel. Sean, I expected you to bring your hevel, but I'm kind of disappointed you didn't bring it to spray with me today. He said, this, too, is hevel, the pursuit of the whim. He said, the fool holds his arms and consumes his own flesh. He says, better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and pursuit of the whim. Again, I saw hevel under the sun. Actually, for God, this is the first service. I didn't get to enjoy this. It says, there is a person without a companion, without even a son or brother, though there is no end to all his struggles. His eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asked, and depriving myself of good things. This, too, is heaven and a miserable task. You see, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist them. You see, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he, for he came from prison to be king, even though he was born poor uh, in his kingdom. I saw all the living who uh, move about under the sun follow a second youth who succeeds him. There is no limit to all the people who were before them, yet those who came later will not rejoice in them. This, too, is hevel and a pursuit of the wind. If you don't know why I'm spraying a spray bottle, you're just going to have to go back and listen to some of the first few sermons. I just can't unpack that today, but hopefully that imagery still hits home. 
He talks about a better way of life, and if you read it, it sounds like just rambling of some old man. It sounds like, honestly, when I'm sitting with my grandpa talking, he talks about when he was a kid and, you know, uh, dealing with pigs, and then suddenly he talks about grandma, and I hope there's no connection there, but then he starts talking about grandma and other stuff and just transitions from thought to thought, and I'm just, okay, grandpa, yes, okay, I'll follow what you're saying. But in reality, he is stringing something together. He's talking about relationships. He starts out in verse 4 through 8 about a sense of rivalry. He said, we're driven by rivalry out of one another, like trying to compete with another. Look at verse 4. He says this. He said, I saw all the labor and all the skillful work, and what does it do? Why do we work so hard? It's due to one person's jealousy of another. It's that keeping up with the Joneses mentality. Everything we do in life sometimes is driven just about trying to have or outdo what someone else is doing next to us, isn't it? I mean, that's so true, especially in this culture and what we're in. It's like, hey, I can't have, like, I need to have what they have. I love the fact that uh, my dad, my parents have just moved into a house right next to my in-laws. I don't know how that's going to go, but it's going to be interesting nonetheless, and they're flipping and gutting a house. Now, my father-in-law built a a shed we call the she shed because he says it's his, but I really think it's my mother-in-law's. But he built a shed, and my dad's going to build one too. And I asked my dad, I said, how big is your shed going to be? He goes, I have no idea how big it's going to be, but I can tell you one thing. It's going to be at least this much bigger than Mark's. That's all I care about. He's like, I don't care, even if it's that much, just so I could say it's that much bigger. That they have trucks, and my dad pulls up and literally parked his truck right next to my father-in-law's truck just to make sure his bed was a little bit higher and his engine was just a little bit bigger. I don't know if you know people like that. It's always about outdoing, and we're always competing with other people. And my question is, why, why do we do that? I struggled myself when I moved up here to Deer Creek and we surrounded ourselves with people who, can I tell you, like, you guys love going on vacations. I don't know what it is, man. You guys love going on vacations. And when we immediately first moved up here, like, we hadn't been on a vacation in 12 years, which, in other words, still hasn't happened. And we're looking around, people are going on vacations. And so what do we do? Out of jealousy, we went and bought a pop-up camper just so we could go camping and get away more. I would love to tell you the reason we bought that pop-up camper is because we want to spend quality time with our kids and because we love one another. It was simply because we were frustrated that so-and-so over here was going on more vacations than us, and I should get just as much as they do. Now, if you can't relate to me, you guys hired the wrong pastor, I guess, today. I'm telling you, we, we struggle with that. It's all of our drive, all of our energy. A lot of times our work is all driven about trying to outdo other people, trying to keep up. And he says, listen, that's not the way to live. As a matter of fact, he goes into kind of this parable. He says, that's heaven. It's a pursuit of the wind. But he says, you know, he said, a fool folds his arm and consumes his own flesh. He goes, but better one handful of rest than two handfuls with effort and pursuit of the wind. He's saying, listen, don't, don't be so competing trying to beat everyone else, but there should be a balance in life. You shouldn't have where you're just trying to outdo other people, but you also should not live a life where you just don't do anything. You just kind of fold your arms like, I don't care, I'm not going to do anything, and I'm just going to consume my own flesh because I have nothing else I have. I just, I'm, I'm going to be lazy. He said, it's better to have at least one handful of something and be able to rest and enjoy what you have than to be constantly grasping for two things and never be satisfied or content. Can you relate? Let me put this illustration on my own kids' level who are actually in here today. My daughter's like Hallie. When she goes to bed, she wants to have every single toy in her room on her bed. The other night, I go tuck her in, and she has a mound of toys on her bed, like, so much so that I can't even tuck her in. And I'm like, Hallie, you can't have all these toys on your bed. So I start taking toys off her bed, and she begins crying, but I need Mickey, but I need Bambi, but I need giant unicorn, you know, all this sort of stuff to grab. And she's holding on to it. And here's the thing, she's so discontent on not having everything that she can't enjoy what she does have. Can you relate? 
I sit there and judge my daughter, and I find myself doing the same thing. I got a house, and I'm like, man, I wish I had better, my living room was redone. I wish I had a better car. I wish I had this, and yet I have this stuff, and I can't find contentment because all my thing is driven on who someone else has. What else is this? We become consumed by it. To the point, look at verse 8. He says, there's a person without a companion, without even a son or brother, and though there is no end to his struggles, his eyes are still not content. He says some people get so consumed by work trying to outdo one another that what happens is that money and things are their only friend. They have no one else in their life. If you don't know what a mental picture of this, then go back to your childhood or your kids' childhoods of uh, Mickey Mouse, A Christmas Story. You guys love that? Watch that? Scrooge McDuck. If you ever know, man, Christmas comes, he's like, Mickey's like, can I go home? He's like, no, I don't pay you to not go home and do all this. He does not care. And you watch this whole cartoon movie and what's going on. He has no friendships because he's so consumed on his wealth. He's so consumed on outdoing other people and having the next best thing. Solomon's saying this in some ways. He's like, what do you gain to possess everything yet have no one to share it with? What do you really gain? He tells you what you gain. Look what he says, John. He says, there's no end to your struggles in verse 8. There's no contentment. There's depriving of myself. There's hevel. It's miserable. He's ultimately saying this. The point is this. It's cooperation, he's saying, is better than competition. It's better to learn how to work together with other people and love them and have a relationship through stuff than to use them as a means to an end to get to my end. And it's so often what we do. And can I tell you, churches struggle with this. How often do we look at the church down the street and like, well, man, their, their church is going great. What's wrong with us? Like, they're doing this. Why can't we do that? Man, there's a lot. They have more people than us. Why can't? Can I tell you, even in our own church, we struggle with it. I see it with connecting group leaders sometimes like, well, so-and-so's class growing. What's wrong with our class? Why can't we grow? Instead, why don't we come and celebrate what's going on? It's like, hey, praise God that church is growing. I went and had coffee this week with a new pastor at Gateway, a guy named Daryl Rainigan that just moved here. His first Sunday at that church was the first Sunday on lockdown. He never saw his church for a month straight before he finally saw them in person. Can you imagine? Like, talk about preaching to no one for a while. I have no idea who it is. But when we sat, I talked to him, and I remember telling him, I said, listen, Daryl, I'm so glad you're here. I'm going to tell you right now, I've been in Deer Creek for about six years now, and I'm going to tell you right now, we can't do it on our own. We need to work with you. We cannot reach this community. We need your help. How often do we look at them as rivals? Like, man, we hope we can outdo them. Think in your own life what this looks like. Can I tell you how you do this? You have to let the accomplishments of others outweigh your own. Let me say it again. You have to let the accomplishments of others outweigh your own. Let me, let me say it in a question that might help you reference this. When's the last time you celebrated another success of something you wanted as well? When's the last time something you were wanting promotion, yet they got it, and you celebrated that they got it more than the fact that you got it? When's the last time that we celebrated that, hey, can you believe Gateway is growing like gangbusters, and yet maybe our church owes it, and we're sitting here thinking, what's wrong with us? We're saying, praise God, they're hitting something right. Like, we get so competitive. Like, listen, the kingdom of God is bigger than us, and we have to start celebrating. We have to come to a point where I want it more for you than almost than I even want it myself. The beauty of what happens when we do that, when we begin to celebrate and want for other people, God ends up blessing us as well. Like if my greatest gift I do is to chase everyone away to gateway and make that church grow and they reach this community, then praise God for what I did. And sometimes we get so caught on, man, I want to make my name great. I want to do this. And it becomes a competition. And so he says cooperation is better than competition. But then he continues on about how relationships are so important. Because look at the next one, verse 9 through 12. It's one you're probably familiar with. He starts out where he says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. 
I don't think I have to accomplish that. I unpack that too much. That's pretty straightforward. It's this idea that we can accomplish more together. I don't care how great you are. If you have other people helping you, you can accomplish more than you ever thought you could. I'm telling you right now. It doesn't matter what you do. I remember whenever we were painting the portables out here, we just got the ones, the adults and everything in, and they needed help painting, and they wanted the youth. And I was a youth pastor, and I'm like, no, nah, we don't want youth in here. They're going to mess everything up and make a mess. I go in there, and I'm, I'm like, I know how to cut in. I know how to paint just right, and I'm doing all my effort, doing all great. They come in, and they, they paint it right behind me, like 10 seconds flat, and it looks just as good as I did. As much effort, I'm like, a bunch of people that have no experience with whatever come in and do the same thing. I get so prideful about myself. But I mean, can I tell you something? In our life, in our culture, and specifically in church, our mind, our mantra is I'll just do it myself. I don't want other people's help. Get away and just let me do it. Can I tell you, churches, we, we deal with that so often. I don't want your help. I'll do it. I don't want other people to do this and get in the way, and it might become a muddy mess, so I'm going to do it myself. And he begins to unpack more reasons of why this is important in verse 10 through 12. And when he's talking about this, it seems foreign to us, but to them, they would have understood it because it's in the context of traveling. When you traveled, it was a very dangerous task. And so he talks about it, it's like, hey, when you're traveling, think of this. If you fell, at least if you fell, if you had someone with you, they could at least lift you up and help you along. If you were out going from one place to another, a 100-mile trek, and you're by yourself, and you fell and broke your leg, let me tell you something, good luck. But at least if you had someone, they could pick you up and help you. He carries on and says, not only that, he says, if you were to lie down and you were cold, at least if you had someone, you could keep warm together. Just for body heat alone, they could provide just simply for that, just being present next to you. He says, if you had someone try to come attack you, you, at least two of you could resist. If you think you had a third person, imagine how great you could be. He's saying all this. And can I tell you, it's the same true with us when it comes to just us emotionally, physically, spiritually. How often do we like, I don't need help, I don't need encouragement. Listen, I would not still be here today if it weren't men in my life who come and just encourage me through difficult times and help me, drag me through the rut I'm sometimes and call me out in my hard life. I'm so grateful for elders that we have plurality and we have men that work alongside me and help me. Can I tell you, a lot of pastors burn out, you know why? Because they don't know how to work with other people. They try to be strong. As a matter of fact, listen to some of these statistics. 75% of pastors report being extremely stressed. 90% work between 55 to 75 hours per week. Now, 90% of pastors feel fatigued and worn out every single week. 80% will not be in ministry in 10 years, period. On average, seminary-trained pastors last only five years in church ministry. 91% have experienced some form of burnout in ministry, and 18% say, and I quote, are they are fried to a crisp right now. 70% of pastors say they have a lower self-esteem right now than they did when they entered ministry. Can you believe that? 70% constantly fight depression. 50% feel so discouraged that they would leave their job ministry right now if they could, but they can't find another job to provide. 80% believe that their pastoral ministry has negatively affected their families, and 33% said it was outright hazardous. Now, I'm not saying that for a pity party, like, oh, Eric's hurting, or Eric's... I'm trying to hit a point. You know why they're struggling with that? Because these same people who were polled, listen to this, 70% of these same guys do not have someone they consider a close friend. 50% do not meet regularly with an accountability person or group. 44% don't take a regular day off. But most pastors try to be Superman and come and use all their skills and giftings and just lean to it themselves. And what happened? They're falling out left and right. On average, a youth pastor, can I tell you, at a church lasts a year and a half. On average, a pastor lasts at a church, you know how long? Two years. You know why that is? Because they come into a church and they have something called a honeymoon phase. Everything goes great, everyone loves them, and then something happens where that goes away. 
and immediately becomes a difficult situation. You tell you something, and after another six months, they give up and move on to the next place. And they go through another honeymoon phase, things go great, and then suddenly something happens again, and what happens? They keep moving along. Now, I'm not telling you that to get all sympathetic with ministry people. That's just my realm. You can sympathize in the same way. But when we try to do ourselves, what happens? You constantly fail. The point Solomon's making here, don't miss it, is this, is being supported is better than being strong. I don't care how strong you are, how great you think you are, if you don't have support and people in your life who are going to hold you accountable, encourage you and pick you up and just be that body warrant sometime, you will not make it. And pastors are missing this left and right. And can I tell you something? I think most of us are missing as well. Like no matter how strong you are, you're only as strong as your weakest moment. You need people. And so how do you do this in your life? You have to come to a point and admit that you need help and allow others to help. Can I tell you something? If you can't do that, that's a pride issue. It's admitting that I'm not perfect. I got the grace. I can't do it myself. I need other people to help me. I need other people to tell me where I'm weak. I need other people to pick me up. But our pride says, I don't want them, I don't need them, so I do it myself. And we find loneliness, loneliness is our only friend. And so he talks about, it. listen, being supported is better than being strong. The last thing he looks at talking about relationship, verse 13 through 16, he talks about kind of popularity or even position. He says, better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king. That's not what you would expect. You expect an old, wise king and a young, immature youth. But he says, like, something's off. Well, why, why is it off? Well, look at the next part. He says, who no longer pays attention to warning. You had this king that got to his position from listening to people and receiving counsel, and at some point along the way, he's like, I don't need them. I'd rather be liked. I'd rather be accepted. I'd rather people tell me what I want to hear. And so I'm going to surround myself with people that just do that. And what happens, he stops heeding the warning to the point that he loses his, his position. And this new kid comes up and takes his position. Who has listened, who has cared, who has let people speak truth in his life. I think of a story, I don't know if you ever listened to this one growing up, The Emperor's New Clothes. You ever heard that one before? Yeah? The Emperor's New Clothes is about this traveling salesman that came into the emperor and says, hey, we want to sell you these sophisticated, fancy clothes. And the emperor goes, I can't see. He's like, oh, only the really elite people can see these clothes. And he's like, yes. So he pays top dollars for these clothes and puts it on. All the people around are like, king, that looks beautiful. We're, we're elite. We're sophisticated. You look great. This king's walking around the town in nothing but his underwear, and finally it took a little kid to go, dude, you're in your underwear. Before he looks around, everyone goes, yeah, you kind of are, man. You, you're kind of walking around with nothing on. Because it took someone finally being honest and saying something that he didn't want to hear before he realized his error. How often do we surround ourselves with people who just tell us what we want to hear? Can I tell you the most selfish people in your life are the ones that will just tell you what you want to hear? You know why? Because they just want you to like them back. They don't really care about you or your heart. He says this king has forgotten so much about this that someone else has come and replaced him. Well, let me ask you this. When's the last time a friend has been brutally honest with you? I said something that they knew might jeopardize your relationship, but they said it because they love you. I love Proverbs 27, verse 5 through 6 says this. It says, open rebuke is better than hidden love. Wounds from a friend are better than kisses from an enemy. It's better if someone tell you something they know will hurt, but they know it's for your best interest than someone who's just going to tell you what you want to hear. In essence, he's saying this, if I can summarize it up. He's saying having camaraderie is better than popularity. Having close friends that really care for you is much better than having a whole bunch that really don't. And what's funny is we tell youth this. I taught this all the time to students in student ministry. It's such an important thing, but somehow when we get to adulthood, we forget and think that doesn't apply to us anymore. I don't need people. I don't need relationships. I don't need this. But let me ask you this. Like, who is going to tell you the truth in your life? 
Like, let me ask you this. If people are not willing to tell you that, why is that? Is there something about you that says, listen, I'm not going to take counsel from you. You know nothing. I'm a wise old king. You're nothing but a foolish young kid. And we neglect the guidance and acceptance of other people because we just want to be liked or we just want to hear what we want to hear. Listen, we, we need this. The big idea I go back to is this, is relationships make life better. Can I tell you something? Like the church can't survive without that. More so, you can't survive without that. If that was never more of a reality of the need than it is right now, take a look around right now. I mean, acknowledge the fact that we have people not here for various reasons, right, wrong, or whatever. And the fact that you're here, I can tell you, like the first thing, I can even feel it right now, the tension of what's going on in the environment right now, and the attitude is forget them. I don't care about you. I'm going to do my own thing. And we've gone to a place that I don't care. Like, I'm going to do my own church. I'm going to do my own life. I'm going to live and do whatever I want. And I don't care about those people out there. And if that's how it is, that's how it's going to be. And can I tell you something? It's just not biblical. If there's anybody that understands the power and need for other relationships, it was Jesus Christ. He came and he said, what? Listen, I'm not going to do this myself. I'm going to surround myself with the 12 most obscene, ignorant men possible and raise them up so we can go and propitiate the gospel. But yet we get off track, we get so focused on ourselves and say, I don't care. I have friends that are telling me, listen, we're just doing church at home. Show me where that's biblical. Hey, we're just going to do our own thing, man. I don't really care. Hey, you want to say whatever, man. Listen, there has come a point where we have to say relationships matter. And if you're not in the room, I'm going to call you and let you know I love you because what you mean to me is so much. And we've gotten to the point where we said we just don't care. And there's never been a time in my life where I've seen empathy more lost than it has been now than ever. I don't care where you are, but there should come a place where, listen, we're not looking for unification and what we all agree is the same. We're looking for unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I might disagree with you on this stance. I might disagree with you on this stance, but let me tell you something. The gospel compels us to put that all aside and put this number one. Can I tell you, if you don't believe me, go read the gospels when Jesus Christ is talking to disciples that are arguing about politics, that are arguing about religion, they are arguing about who's the greatest, and she's like, have you forgotten about me? Because that's what it's really about right here. And we've gotten off track somewhere. And we can't help but have this tension going all over the place. Listen, it's time for the church to be the church and step up and say, listen, this is what the gospel's about. I'm going to sacrifice my needs for you because why? Relationships matter. I'm going to ask you to sacrifice your needs for me. You know why? Because relationships matter. And if we do this together, we can do it better. The Bible tells us that when people would come and put their, their differences aside and would come be united in this gospel, it would be so attractive to the world that they would want it and know that he's real. Something that says, this person out here, how can they possibly, like that dude over there, they can't stand one of theirs, and there's no way. They're, they're Republican, Democrat, they're this and that. They're so opposite. But you know what brings us together is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of that, something about that is appealing, and I want that. In a world that's so divided, at what point are we going to come say, that's the most important thing? We've lost it. And I'm tired of taking phone calls and people frustrated about it. Listen, it, it, we have got to come to a point and say, this is what it's about. And if you don't get this, then you're not going to get this. If you don't understand the need for relationships, you don't understand how important the person that's not sitting here right now, the people that are at home watching, you guys at home who is here right now, if you don't understand how important that is, you've missed it. And frankly, maybe it is best we send to people to other church because we've missed it. And so here's my calling, my, my request to this is, is Choose other people, man. Fight for the gospel. Our relationships matter. If you see someone not here today, you normally see, listen, call them. 
the world has put us in a situation we've never been before. And can I tell you what's unique is we have the ability to reach out to them, to even see them face-to-face on the phone. I know you're sick of Zoom. I know you're sick of face calls. But listen, people need to know that you're present in your care. People need to know that you have body heat and you're just willing to sit next to them and keep them warm for a second. But yet they're out of sight and out of mind. And I struggle with this as well. We've got to be intentional. The church has to stand up. Listen, the church will not die, but our church might. So the question is, what are you going to do? So as Max comes up, I'm going to ask if you would just where you're at, just pray. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. So I'm going to ask you your head bowed, your eyes closed, take a second and pray for these relationships. Pray for the people that you maybe haven't seen since March 1st. God, give me a heart for them that I didn't have before. Let me put my resentment, my frustration, my bitterness aside and put you as the king of my throne. I may have to sacrifice my needs. I may have to get outside my comfort zone with my health and push a little bit of the limits. I may have to wear a mask and sweat all under this mask just to make people. I may have to come and put aside my, my political, my, my whatever views, whatever, and just put the gospels first. And so I ask you to pray for that. God's stirring you in your heart. Do something about it. You need to come confess. Maybe your heart's gotten off track or you've been bitter. Like, listen, some of our elders will be over here. They'd love nothing more than to pray for you and encourage you. But we got to do something. I say this real quick to you. I don't want to get off on another tangent, but I have people telling me they're worried about the church, worried about the church dying. Listen, the church has been through far worse. Church has dealt with worse persecution. They're dealing with it right now in other countries that, that mass don't even begin to touch on. And can I tell you, the church is going to survive. God's, God's mission is going to survive. But I'm going to tell you right now, you, you can't survive without the church. I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the people. And if our goal is just to figure out how to meet in a room again, then we've, we've missed it. It's about meeting with people, about being endeared to their hearts, being endeared to one another. You cannot survive without that. So I plead for, I didn't do this first service, I'm asking the second service, I plead for you to find a way, be proactive. How can we strive for unity in this disunified world? How can I love someone so much next to me that I put their needs above my own to the point that it makes it even hurts? Father God, I just I pray for our congregation. I pray for our leadership as we struggle to figure out how to navigate these worlds. These are unprecedented times. God, your church will not die. I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about your mission being squashed. God, I'm worried about our role in it. 
God's stirring hearts, people that love one another, that see their need for another, not as a stepping stone, but as just relationship, how I need them. God, let's not neglect meeting together. Sometimes in person we're not able to, but in spirit we should still find a way to stir God and fight for one another and push one another and love one another. God, help us not to forget that. Help us not to lose our identity in who you are and get so caught up in the identity of the world's pushing on us, the mass for snow maskers, the, the, the all lives matter, you know, black lives matter, whatever it is, God. We, we're getting lost in different messages and we've lost the message of who you are, God. Stir in our hearts this truth. God, let us live gospel-filled life and gospel-driven lives. I praise you for being present. I praise you for this message that I, I feel like you've had to take over. God, let our church start navigating these difficult waters better. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.